Once upon a time, in a faraway land, I woke up and realized I am going to be a dentist. Said like no one ever. These are the real stories, not fairy tales. As we go behind the smiles, this is a podcast where we interview and chat with some of the biggest leaders in dentistry, learn their stories, and share their motivation with your host, Dr. Gina Dorfman. Today's podcast is brought to you by Yappy, an automated paperless software for dentists and their teams. Learn more at yappyapp.com. This podcast episode is a special two-part feature. You're currently listening to part one. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smiles. I am here today with my good friend, Dr. Andrew Turchin. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome to the show. I'm really excited. Now, for those, um, any of our listeners who don't know Dr. Turchin, let me share a very quick biography. Dr. Turchin graduated from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in 1999. After that, Andrew completed advanced education and general dentistry program at Columbia University and started practicing as an associate at a prominent Fifth Avenue practice, well known for their reconstructive work. Currently, Dr. Turchin runs a very successful cosmetic practice in Aspen, Colorado, where he lives with his beautiful wife, who just happens to have the prettiest name in the world, <laughs> Gina, <laughs> and their daughter, Ava. <laughs> when Andrew is not prepping or cementing the mirrors, he is pursuing his passion, skiing the freshly powdered double black diamond slopes in one of my favorite skiing resort towns. Sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? But it wasn't always smooth sailing, was it, Andrew? Well, you know, just like anybody else, there's growth pains, and there always is. There always will be. And I think um, from a mindset standpoint, it's really important to always be uh, ready for them and and, and not let them stop you in your tracks, Uh, you know, whether it be a bad associateship or uh, a tough uh, practice transition, you know, in your past or or a current day, uh, you know, debate with the building department in your town, whatever it might be, these are just small things and they, they, you know, we get past them all. They're just hurdles in life. That's so true. The road to success is not always a straight path. In fact, it's, it's anything but. Let's go back a little bit and kind of unpack your journey. Let's start at the beginning. Why did you decide to become a dentist? Huh, good question. I, you know, I, I always like people and I, I like... Um, sciences and biology. And I was actually thinking more of physical therapy. Um, And I was a little bit nervous about the like uh, the corporate takeover of physical therapy. And then look two decades later, I think (laughs) dentistry is dealing with a similar situation. Uh, But I was younger and I I, I believed what the trends were and and stuck that, that, that you can't work outside those trends. So I think there's plenty of physical therapists in this country that work outside the uh, corporate setting. And I think, you know, there, there's plenty of us dentists that are still working outside the corporate setting. And there's, and I think there always will be some. And if you know how to maneuver that and, 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 you know, run your business in that way, I don't think it's an issue. So when I was young and, and in college, I think that pushed me towards dentistry. That's excellent. You know, there's something that you said, and, and we're going to get to it, a, you know, a little bit l- later because I definitely want to talk about this. But uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, concern, obviously, about corporate dentistry in our world. But 
as you said this, I thought, well, you know, corporate dentistry would really have a hard time replacing Turchin. You know, you could they could probably replace the bread and butter dentist, but definitely not um, replace the kind of dentistry that you do. But we're going to come back to this. And what I want to know is uh, what was your path once you decided that you wanted to go to um, into dentistry? What was your path from there? Well, I always knew I wanted to do quality dentistry. And it's, you know, looking back, I don't think I really knew what that meant. But uh, when you're when you're searching to do the, the, the best dentistry you can, you just continue on that path. And uh, I think to this day, I still continue on that path. And I hope to get better every day. <clears throat> but I, I think, you know, everybody's personality is different. And for me, I was like, you know, the, I'm, I'm you know, that whatever stereo geek uh you know now i can, i'm a gear geek of sorts so um i was always looking for the best stereo or the best skis today or whatever it is i, I like i like having good things and i like doing great things so for me it wasn't necessarily about volume or production or anything else it was about quality and with that uh obviously production and and uh stuff like that comes over time and i think the beginning of my career for sure uh, was no rush to try to produce more. I mean, I was excited every, you know, day when I, you know, as my practice grew. But you know, I, I'd say in the beginning, my practice was quite small, and it took quite a long time, and um, it took a lot of knowledge over a long time. And uh, I, I, for me, I, th- I think there's, there's, I probably could have gotten some of that knowledge faster, or I could have been more aggressive. But I was, uh, I was a young kid, and I was having fun, and uh, I, I enjoyed my my journey to say the least. I think it's really important because I, I think we can all focus on on being very um, aggressive with our growth. I think we can, you know, some some people choose to move where there's more production. Some people move where, you know, they can be closer to family and, you know, to enjoy life outside of dentistry. And I, I don't necessarily think that there is a right or wrong way to do things, but um, I, I think no matter what you do, you have to pursue your passion. And this is certainly what you've done. Not only you get to practice quality dentistry, the kind of dentistry that you envisioned, uh, but you also enjoy to do what you, you also have the ability to enjoy what you enjoy to do most. So let me ask you a question. What was your path from, from the moment that you graduated from dental school to where you are today? Uh, can you take me through the most significant steps and, and what you've learned from them? Sure. Um, well, first I, I was lucky, I guess, uh, actually it was, a, I, for, I was going to skip a step, but um, I, I was at Columbia and I was a little bit bored, so I started moonlighting. I had met a colleague that graduated maybe 15, 20 years before who had a a very nice family practice, but like a panky-based family practice, which is mm-hmm. kind of, you know, interesting. He saw kids, but he was a panky guy. He was a very, very good dentist. Uh, and uh, I met him at a, uh, an alumni event, and he was nice enough to invite me in to work um, on Saturdays at his office. So I started moonlighting with him and it got me reading Dawson and things like that. Um, so I could, you know, hopefully uh, do the kind of dentistry that he envisioned for his patients. And before you know it, I was invited by a friend in New York City to uh, a dental meeting. And and because of my Dawson knowledge, I had asked a question to the lecturer and somebody else in the room took notice and um, a well-known prosthodontist um, in, in New York City, reconstructive cosmetic guy, but uh, 
with a press background. And he said, hey, you know, c- come hang out after the meeting. And after a few drinks, he invited me to the office. And uh, I didn't realize I was interviewing. I, I was so stupid. I was a young <laughs> kid, just thought, uh, you know, I met a new colleague and friend. And before you know it, he, I was his towel boy. And I, <laughs> I helped him with his big cases. And I even was in the lab waxing. And I was just there to help in any way I could. And uh, I think too many dentists don't want to do that type of thing. But for me, I learned so much. I learned so much when I'm in the lab. I learned so much talking to technicians. Um, and uh, it was just a great learning experience to ACE. I probably learned more about the type of dentistry I want to do in just a couple of days there than I had learned in my entire year of residency. So hmm. I knew that was worth it for me to spend the time, even if I wasn't getting paid that much and I wasn't producing that much, you know, it didn't matter. And I guess I was lucky, you know, I graduated at a time where we had lower student loans. And I think, you know, I, I feel bad for the, the kids coming out now. Um, and, you know, when we graduated, our loans weren't that bad. We could, we could take a job, not just for the dollars, but for the knowledge we gained from it. So uh, that mentorship was great. Then I, you know, about two, two and a half, actually two and a half years later, I started my own practice about 10 blocks down on Fifth Avenue, small two operatory practice. I thought I never needed any more. (laughs) (laughs) Silly me. Um, And then uh, from there, I was actually moonlighting a little bit for Larry Rosenthal uh, while I was starting my own practice. I also was uh, um, helping World Trade Center Dental rebuild. So those were some of my key experiences. Obviously, I learned a lot about aesthetics at um, at, from Larry Rosenthal and and Jonathan Levine, my first the first practice. Uh, and I was always, I, I don't know, I was just trying to suck in the knowledge from these people that had done it before me uh, and have done it for a long time and know the pitfalls and not just the, the technical aspects, but also the patient management aspects and, you know, how to, how to present uh, larger cases. I was always paying attention to that. And then, uh, you know, we, we grew quite a bit in New York over the next, um, I guess, I, after my my first associateship about 11 years uh my practice in new york 13 years altogether in new york and after having built i pretty much i thought my dream practice i woke up one day and thought why don't i ski all the time I, i'm always rushing to go on vacation to ski you're getting to be that way I, I, we better get nervous <laughs> about your practice there <laughs> I'm not moving into your town, don't worry. <laughs> no, 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 about your practice. About, you know, uh, y- your practice is so well run, it probably runs itself at this point. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, my journey was uh, in New York City, uh, building my own practice after a mentorship type of situation. And I joked that I was a towel boy, and I was. And I, I think, in my opinion, I, I think – if you really want to have the greatest knowledge um, given to you, you, you have to be willing to do anything for your mentors and, and be there. Uh, it's like the karate kid, you know, wax on, wax off, wash the car, do what you have to do. There's a lesson in all of it. And uh, I think we have to be willing to take it. I love what you just said here, because I read a lot of posts online from younger dentists who are, frustrated with um, the fact that they're not able to graduate and immediately go into a setting where, you know, they're set up with nice equipment where they can start doing big dentistry, big cases, take CEs. Um, 
and and uh, you know, I don't think there are a lot of opportunities for those dentists out there. Uh, but what would you say to a dentist like that? What would you advise be? Well, you know, I, I'm sure I was the same way. I'm, I'm actually quite sure I was the same way. I always thought, although I was willing to do all that, I always thought I deserved more, that I should get more new patients or I should get more of that. But I would say to relax a little bit and your first two years of practice don't have to be <clears throat> as, you know, you're really profitable. Um, they should be more profitable in knowledge, I think, than in dollars. Because that knowledge will bring back so much throughout your career. And to try to suck up knowledge versus worrying about the most dollars coming in. That would be my, whether that be the knowledge of the time you spend to talk to a patient, um, to maybe, you know, mount a case and wax it if you have to, to figure out what could work and what might not work. Um, and, and all those things and, and spending time with mentors. And those things don't necessarily aren't, they're not necessarily profitable, but they are in the long term. I would say. I love what you just said. They're more profitable in knowledge and not in dollars. This is probably some of the best advice we've uh, heard on this show. Um, I, I really hope that any young dentist who's listening to this is, is taking it close to heart because you really cannot put value on the kind of experience uh, that you can get, not necessarily in a practice where you are producing, but in a practice where you can work under a mentor who is willing to share and show you the ropes because you can learn a lot sitting in the lecture or even in a hands-on course, but you can definitely learn a lot more when you're working next to someone who is really a master of this art. Um, it was funny. Every time I talk to a successful dentist, I hear him or her say, I got very lucky. Every single time mm -hmm. a successful person says, I got very lucky, but it's not just pure luck, right? We, we make our own luck. So how do we make our own, own luck? And as a young dentist, how do we find these mentors who are willing to uh, help us and, and mentor us? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think about the, the lucky moment where, um, where Jonathan Levine said to me, uh, hey, come out for a drink. And, and then after that, stop by my office. And um, if I wasn't reading Dawson, I wasn't gaining knowledge and I didn't, you know, put myself out there and ask a very, very well-known lecturer uh, a question uh, that, was that, that was obvious that I had a knowledge base. And in fact, in fact, uh, he, he screamed out in the audience and this is how we, you know, got to meet. He said, who's this guy quoting Dawson? I, I wasn't quoting Dawson. I just, you know, it was a Dawson idea. I don't remember. I think it was like a vertical dimension, uh, um, you know, kind of reverting back to uh, the original or something like that. I, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like that. Um, and I, I think just it, it, things happen. I, I've always found that whether, you know, the universe is, it works in interesting ways. And whenever I put an effort in one dimension. It never, you know, I can't tell you that I follow the Dawson text now. I can't tell you that's my knowledge base. I, you know, I, I think some of the ideas in there are great and some are not for me um, in my philosophy. But <clears throat> the fact that I had made an effort to learn and grow um, opened the door for me. Uh, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Without having that knowledge and having asked a question and putting myself out there, uh, you know, I, I don't, 
think it would have been the same for me. So that, that I think that was my luck. That I, I never really thought about that. That was the moment that got me into because I had been knocking on doors trying to find quality associateships, and I hear it's impossible, and it was impossible. I, I tell you, it was impossible. But in that moment, it became very easy. That's so true. You just said knocking on doors, and, and I was just thinking that luck is really just you know if you knock on enough doors, one of them is going to be a lucky one. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. a there's a Jewish joke about a uh, like a Russian Jewish joke about uh, a man uh, praying and, and saying, please, please let me win the lottery. Please, please let me win the lottery. Please, please let me win the lottery. And finally got response. Look, can you just please buy the ticket? So, <laughs> right, right, right. right. So that's right. That, that's a little bit about uh, making your own luck. So. How did you, okay, so you were practicing in New York, you had a successful practice, and uh, now you are in Aspen. How, you know, you, you just followed your dream, just like that, you left everything, you packed up, and you followed your dream, and tell me about that. Pretty that- much that it was pretty much that simple, I have to tell you. <laughs> it's really boring, but I went home to my Gina, not you, but, um, <laughs> and I, I said, uh, hey, what do you think about moving to Aspen one day? And it was just a crazy pipe dream, why not? do it. I love more often. And instead of thinking about once a month getting out West to ski, um, you know, ski every, every weekend. And she said, Oh, let's look into it. And that was the little foot in the door I needed. And, and it was pretty much, I mean, I, two weeks later, I had a, an offer on my practice. I couldn't refuse. Took a few months for the lawyers to work out their deal. And, uh, it was ooh, what, uh, we were about nine months from idea to actually moving to Aspen. And for the next winter, I was I was here and I was, you know, had started a tiny little practice. Actually, I bought a small defunct tiny practice. So I didn't have to rebuild a physical plant and all that. I could walk in and start seeing patients. And that's what I did. I think uh, we moved here on a Saturday and on Tuesday, I was, I was seeing my first patient. Oh, wow. What year was that? That was 2012. 2012. Wow. And uh, I was at your new practice so you did you rebuild the practice or what happened last year? I was at a grand opening of your new and beautiful and like really high end, amazing practice, and I met some of your patients and I've seen some of your work on your patients, which is which is awesome. Um, how so? How many years was that? Uh, six, right? Was that a, a new building or uh, tell me about that? Well, we were looking for new space. Um... Well, we were looking to expand. We considered expanding our current space. And uh, I don't know, I, ch- I chose a different landlord. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I was going to spend a lot of money to combine the next door space of my own. And I said, if I'm going to spend this money, I'm going to be there for another 10, 15, 20 years. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let, me, let me choose a different landlord. Let me put it that way. So we, uh, we moved next door and we mm-hmm. built out a new space. It was a uh, plastic surgeon's office and we did a pretty decent renovation and it, it's uh, it, it's classic Aspen. It's an old Victorian on main street and we're, we're loving it. We're a little more room. There's only one more operatory to be honest, but we brought our laboratory from the downstairs basement in the old building upstairs so that our uh, ceramist is in the office now instead of being, you know, down in the dungeon. And I just think it's, it's more common that he'll be in the operatory, uh, which I think is a huge benefit for shades and other things. And it's more common that I step into the lab and uh, review cases. And I just, we, we collaborate quite a bit. 
And I, for me, that's, you know, my style. I like working together closely with someone. Um, and it's, it's been, it's really been an amazing, uh, amount of growth for me in the last, uh, three or three and a half years that we've had a, a dental lab on premises. That's wonderful. And, you know, I, I have to give credit to Gina because she really, she's a um, interior designer and uh, she created a, a beautiful, beautiful office for you. Um, and of course, um, you know, I, I have to give her credit because honestly, if my husband just came in right now into the room and said, let's move to Aspen. I probably go like, okay, uh, yeah, let's think about that. You know? <laughs> so I have to give her credit for just, you know, going along with your uh, crazy ideas, but it does seem to work out. And, and so tell me about you. <laughs> call me crazy. Just call me crazy. <laughs> I might have. Um, so what is it like practicing in the resort town? <clears throat> well, it's, it's a little bit different in that it's, it's quite seasonal. Uh, we have about eight, eight busy months and four relatively slower months. And we still, obviously people live here, but even locals leave on vacation uh, in the off season uh, for at least a couple of weeks. So there's less people in town just means our practice is less busy. So we've learned to take our vacations during that time and expect the lulls and not say, Oh, the, you know, whatever our monthly production's not, you know, what it was in the summer or the winter. Um, we, we've learned to just deal with the lulls and, and, and take advantage of them, actually. Um, and we also, that's the time in the off-seasons that we run our um, over-the-shoulder uh, and hands-on courses here in the practice. So that's another thing that we do because I could never do that during the season. It would just, it would be much too disruptive to the flow of the practice. But in the off-season, we can make that time and we could concentrate on it. Um, and so it's wonderful. Uh, it's a time for me to concentrate on growing. It's a time for me to concentrate on helping others grow. That's wonderful to be able to do that. So tell me a little bit about your practice. What is your procedure mix? What kind of patients do you see? Um, I, I imagine that in a resort town, you have a good mix of, um, you know, some locals, but also emergencies, also, you know, maybe out-of-town guests. Uh, tell me some, tell me about the mix in your practice. Sure. Um, here, yeah, I've, I've, I, in New York City, I had very few emergencies. I didn't even think the 15th floor of a Madison Avenue building is not going to get, and not in, we're not even in the yellow pages. There's just almost no emergencies besides one of your patients breaks a tooth, and it's great. It's hardly an emergency, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, we're gonna we're gonna fit them in for the crown, you know. Um, <clears throat> but here, I, I, I'd say, oh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, on average, during a busy time, two emergencies per day thrown into the schedule that are either a broken veneer or, you know, a chip tooth, an abscess. But we get a lot of cosmetic emergencies. So uh, and that's when I started considering teaching when I was seeing so much, uh, you know, cosmetic work that I, I thought wasn't really um, up to par. What I, I, I hadn't seen that much outside of my circles in New York. And I, I saw a lot of great dentistry. I know there's tons of great dentistry done in this country. There's a lot of pretty good dentistry done in this country, which is great. But amazingly, I, I was kind of, it, it, it saddened me. And that's when I said, I want to get out there and give people uh, an easier way to gain this knowledge and to do better for their patients. I know almost every dentist I know really wants to do really quality work. And um, some don't have the knowledge, some don't have the you know, the confines of insurance and things like that. 
but I think there's always a way to do some pretty gar- darn good dentistry. I mean, I think I think a whole Sarek veneer case can look amazing. There are ways. It's just having the knowledge of what teeth look like, um, wh- where you know incisal length should be and incisal position, both not just uh, in a vertical plane but in a horizontal plane. And I strive to teach dentists the simple ways to figure out where to put teeth. I've heard you speak at the practice on fire about um, beginning with the end of my, in mind and, and you kind of apply it to both, you know, cosmetic dentistry and the way of life. And I think you've done that very well with building your awesome practice in um, Aspen, but let's talk about dentistry because you mentioned where to set the teeth. And I, I imagine that's where, that's where you're going. So talk to me about beginning with Absolutely. the end in mind. <laughs> How many people, how many times do you see a smile in your practice that just is gorgeous, naturally gorgeous? But what do we do about it? In my practice for decades, I've taken photographs and impressions of every great smile I've ever seen. And so oh, wow. that's what I've studied over and over again. And when you study that, you start seeing the commonalities. And in your mind, you create an, uh, I, I've created, and this is the way my brain works, I create an algorithm. I think that my brain was using to design smiles. And uh, just a couple of years ago, I actually, I, I wrote down the algorithm or I, I put it into a mathematical formula. And now that's what I teach. I teach Dennis um, because it's not naturally, you haven't done it a thousand times. You don't know everything about it, but if you take these measurements and do these calculations, you've got the answer of what you have to do to the teeth to make them absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Um, and functionally correct. I mean, we have to remember it's uh, for me, it's funny. A lot of people say I'm a cosmetic dentist and I guess I am, but I, I really don't necessarily love that term. I don't, I don't think I don't, I, it minimizes the functional aspect of it, which I think is so important to make things uh, long lasting. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a shame if we do anything that looks great and doesn't la- last the test of